Coach Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. John Payne was the frontman and lead vocalist for the progressive rock band Asia for 14 years, recording eight studio albums and leading many successful world tours. To continue his extensive legacy with Asia, Asia featuring John Payne was formed in 2007 and has been touring in North America since 2008. Up next on Celeb Savant, we've got John Payne from Asia featuring John Payne. Where do we find you in the world? What's happening in your life and how are you doing? Today, I'm in uh, the studio, which is uh, our studio, Loco uh, Studios, uh, Las Vegas. I'm in Las Vegas, the gambling capital of the world, in my studio, tracking for uh, songs for a new record. And uh, I've got two months off of touring. We go back on the road in July. I'm writing the songs for the new album and uh, thoroughly enjoying it. I'm I'm very, very much an equipment nerd, as most of us become after years in this business. And I'm very happy that uh, I built this studio here. And uh, it's a facility for the band and for any other projects I get involved with. Because uh, as with Asia, I recorded and mixed and engineered a lot of the uh, records that I did with, with Asia. Mm-hmm. And I I, lo- I love doing that. I'm, you know, I'm as happy in the studio as on the road. And the songwriting process is, is really a big, big thing for me. All the bands that I've, that I've ever liked, that despite musicianship, vocals or whatever chops people have the the whole foundation of a band are their songs yeah. and songwriting is is really the most important part of it all i'm going to get back into songwriting a little bit later but let's rewind all the way back so the hybrid version of the john payne story in the music industry what motivated you? What invigorated you from whatever age to say, cool, this is my path. This is where I want to go. Let's hear your story in the, in it, in the entertainment world. When I was uh, about eight years old, my uncle, who was uh, a multi-talented musician, he could play anything from a mandolin to a piano, um, sing and whistle as they did in those days. He bought me... Uh, my first guitar, which was a Vox semi-acoustic jazz body guitar at eight years old. And I was pretty much obsessed from then on. I had, I think, one guitar lesson in my whole life, which was when I was on vacation in uh, Devon. My parents took me to a classical guitarist guy and I had one lesson. And then I just self-taught myself um, at my school. Um, there were no music lessons at school. So, in fact, mm. I ended up being uh, at the age of about 13, 14, uh, a guitar teacher. I taught guitar at school. Oh, wow. And the school gave me some money. And then when I was about 14, I uh, kind of illegally worked in a nightclub two or three nights a week yeah. in a bat and pretended that I was uh, 16 years old or 17 years old to get into the nightclub. 
and I did that. So actually, in my youth at school, I was actually earning earning good money back then. And then I started, you know, my first band. And uh, then my first band just did a couple of couple of shows. And then my second band, Moonstone, that uh, did pretty well touring up and down the country. And we supported a lot of acts like Brand X or Argent. And mm-hmm. um, I used to help the guy who, who pro- the promoter, I used to go around with him in the middle of the night, illegally fly posting on walls and stuff. That's how people used to advertise in those days. Okay. With posters. And you try and get it up as quickly as possible before the police came along. <laughs> and I, I did that to help. His name was Barry Clarker. I haven't probably said that name for 40 odd years, but yeah, he used to um, have the car revved up and I'd run out with a bucket and paste and put up these posters. And in return, he let me support, you know, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates or Brand X or whoever was playing at the St. Albans Civic Hall that he promoted. Yeah. So I used to do that to help him. And in return, I'd get the support slot. It was cool. We managed to play to some, some big audiences. And at that time, it was just a three-piece band. And I was actually not the bass player, singer. I was the guitarist singer. I had a Flying V guitar, which is actually in this room. Uh, that we're in now. This guitar, uh, I lost for 40 years and it just came back to me. But then I had a little bit of a solo career and uh, also, you know, recorded some tracks with Moonstone, recorded at BBC's Maidavell Recording Studios. My friend uh, I used to go to school with, his brother was a big engineer producer at the BBC. And we used to sneak in there at nights to do sessions through the night and recorded some great songs in these amazing studios with huge SSL mixing desks. Then I actually performed on a, a hit with a friend of mine called Keith Marshall. I used to um, uh, w- work with this guy called Keith Marshall, who was in a band called Hello. And then he had a big hit with um, a song called Only Crying, which mm-hmm. we played on a well-known TV show called Top of the Pops in England. I had two little jobs. I worked one at a place in my village called Harpenden, at an experimental station, which was in agriculture. And I was uh, uh, a scientist on plants. Oh, wow. And then I left that, and then I worked for a company called Vauxhall Motors, which is part of General Motors Buying Steel. And I worked there for a year. On Wednesday, I recorded Top of the Pops, phoned in sick, and it's broadcast on a Thursday. On a Thursday, I came into work and uh, picked up my pens and pencils and left. That was the last time I did a proper job. So I just walked out of my job and went, <laughs> that's it. I'm I'm now going to be a musician. Yes. And I, I've always wanted to be. knew that the career in music is what I wanted. And after that, you know, I, I had several bands. Um, I had a solo career. I sang a soundtrack, the theme song, on a movie called Ride the Storm with Dennis Hopper and Michael J. Pollard. I put a few records out, had a, had a bit of radio success. Then I had a, put another band together uh, called The Passion with Andy Nye from the Michael Schenker Band mm-hmm. and Clive Burr from Iron Maiden. And it was pretty heavy. And I was just a singer in that band. Um, and then I did a showcase 
and Don Arden, the famous Don Arden of uh, Sharon Sharon Osbourne's father, of Jet Records and manager of Black Sabbath. Um, his son came to, David Arden came to my showcase for getting a record deal and came up and said to me, we're, we're going to be very interested in working with you. Can you meet with me tomorrow? So I met with him. And that's when I got asked to join ELO. Um, oh, okay. Jeff Lynn had left ELO. Yeah. And Bev was looking for a singer. So I worked with them for a while. It changed from ELO to ELO Part 2. I went to the States and worked and became friends with the mighty songwriter Jim Steinman. who's written, you know, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Yeah, and, the yeah. and um, during that time, um, I came back to London and it was very slow putting ELO together because there were a lot of legalities over the name yeah. and what Jeff wanted, because really ELO was Jeff Lynn's baby. I got offered by Jeff Downs, who I'd met, my friend Phil Sporting, who sadly just passed, was the bass player in um, GTR. And GTR were recording at the Townhouse in London, their first album. And you, know, you probably know some of the hits, When the Heart Rules the Mind, with Steve Hackett and Steve Howe. It was a great yes. super group mover, Max Bacon and, and Phil Spaulding. And Phil was amazing, amazing musician and bass player. He was a great friend of mine. He actually used to play bass on a, on a lot of my tracks. So um, he introduced me to Jeff Downs during those recording times. I popped in the studio, became friends with Jeff. And I got asked to join Asia and home. And I remember asking my girlfriend at the time, it's like, what should I do? Should I do ELO or Asia? And she goes, well, I think Asia's your pathway. And so the next day I phoned up Don Arden and said, look, Don, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm joining Asia. And he was like, Oi, you'll never work in this business again, son. Just watch your back. Oh, you know, he, yeah. he was well known for threatening people and stuff. There was a famous story where he, he hung Robert Stigwood out of a 10-story building over, over a record deal. Oh. Um, I, yeah. I actually yeah. got, on, got on with him well. And by that time, he was an older man, and I was like, yeah, sure, you know, if you're going to whack me, you're going to do it without telling me. <laughs> I uh, then joined Asia. You know, it was it was great because I, I my career up until then was kind of really struggling to get a record deal. Uh, here's I'm joining a band that uh, you know sold about 14 million albums. Wow. You know, I'd been in the studio. I had a lot of studio experience. I did a lot of session work. I you know I'd worked with Roger Daltrey. I and myself did the backing vocals on an album called Under a Raging Moon. So I worked in a lot of big London studios and. And became pretty quick in the studio. So um, Jeff Downs had some songs. And then in 90, 1992, I joined the band. And 16 years, you know, I just worked uh, doing Asia and touring the world and recording all our Aqua Aria Arena, yeah. uh, all our AA albums and Silent Nation as well with Jeff. And the boys and, and had a thoroughly wonderful career. And then uh, when the original lineup got back together, then it was agreed that, that I would uh, use the name Asia featuring John Payne, as much as I hate having my name to an adage, define the two bands. Yes. Now you find me in the studio um, recording the first original album by... Um, 
AFJP, um, which is a really wonderful thing to do. I had a show in Las Vegas called Raiding the Rock Vault that uh, I co-wrote with a, a record entrepreneur, David Kirschenbaum. Used many great albums, Duran Duran, Tracy Chapman, and we worked together on a Vegas show. I did that for two years, and while I couldn't, I stopped being on the road, um, I recorded a, an album called Recollections mm-hmm. with FJP that, that was uh, kind of a look back of all the famous songs I did. I even did Eye in the Sky and got my dear friend Alan Parsons. He actually agreed to be in the video with me. And then actually in this studio as well, um, I've been recording an instrumental album, in fact, three, that have, has just come out. I wanted to do some instrumental stuff for a friend's TV show. And it started as very clips. And then they went into long songs. My friend Steve Gustafson, I, I recorded, and some of the Asia FJP band members are on this, and a lot of guests. And it's kind of in a Pink Floyd era type music. Yeah. Here's one of them. And it's called... Uh, the Loco Crew. I kind of stole that from my recording studios, Loco Recording Studios. That's been a fun project in just before starting this this new Asia FJP album. That's kind of a brief potted history. I love the journey. I love the stories. I love all the interactions. So what about the guitar appealed to you compared to any of the other instruments um, that were out there? So why did your uncle think the guitar would suit you? And why did you lend yourself to that compared to the piano? Or It was interesting. I had a strange childhood illness. And, yeah, and they thought I was going to croak. I was eight, eight years old and uh, something went wrong entirely with my stomach. Okay. Didn't sure. know what, what happened. Yeah. And, and I spent a f- quite a long time in hospital. And my uncle, uh, he couldn't really bring me a piano. Yes. And in yeah. those, those days, there were no real portable keyboards. Yeah, yeah. Also, by the age of 10, in the 60s, there was this huge explosion of guitarists, 8 and 10 years old. I was listening to the likes of these new players, Eric Clapton, mm. Carlos Santana, uh, Jimi Hendrix, all these, these 60s bands had discovered the distorted guitar sound before then it was all clean i really liked this this wild sound that the guitar could get and my uncle bought me two things he bought me i don't know if you ever remember them a little thing called a stylophone yes we had an aussie guy that who was the face of it called ralph harris yes and he bought this little thing and it was a little electronic monophonic keyboard yeah with a pen Yes, and I think the solo, like Life on Mars, was one of them. They used it on that, and you know it was an early synthesizer. So he gave me that, uh, but I wanted something that you know was polyphonic, could play more than one note. Yes, and so he bought me this beautiful guitar. I had no clue how to tune it or anything like that. I just sat in my hospital bed with nothing to do. And yes, what's great in those days? One, you know. There was never a more influential time when the Stones went to uh, America and brought rock blues back to the UK. 
So in the middle of the 60s, it was just an amazing explosion of of music with bands, you know, like The Who that had gone on from The Beatles, The Who, The Stones, yeah. that had this really raucous guitar sound, which before had been more this clean Stratocaster sound of bands like The Shadows. It blew, it blew my mind. A child in hospital, nothing to do. Unfortunately, I feel sorry for the kids of today that have to grow up with social media. And, yeah. You know, All that nonsense. <laughs> wasting hours playing games. As kids, we didn't wait. I don't think we wasted our time. We'd be out playing soccer or climbing trees or mm-hmm. doing something aerobically. Me and my friends used to get together in my garage in Luton, in Bedfordshire, in, in the UK. And we used to put on, you know, like a Braxis by Santana or something. Mm-hmm. And we used to all play along to it. That was our idea. And even then, our parents would be like banging on the walls, turn it down, <laughs> do the You know, I was kind of discouraged to play. My parents, when I didn't go to university to study, and I went off and opted to go with a band, were very, very disappointed after sending me to private school and my mother working nights to put my brother and I through school, that I would go off and do this. I mean, there I remember a great time with my father, who's no longer with us. We had two sell-out nights at the Town and Country Club in London, and he came and said, he put his arms around me and said, yeah, you did the right thing. And it was, oh. it was I'll never forget that moment. Guitar still, I love it. I'm still learning, and I must have 40 guitars in this studio. Obviously, I've got a lot of basses as well. I've got a lot of old vintage amps. I just bought um, a 1969 uh, Fender Bassman, which was the amp, the bass amp that they realized if you plugged a guitar into it, it would overload. And it wasn't spoke. They wanted this clean amp for basses, but you turn it right up and it distorted like hell. And that's how Marshall amps all those amps started from the basic Fender circuit. So I've just got an old one, unmodified, and it just sounds incredible. It sounds like early cream. And I still find that era of music just magical. There, you know, I got into so many bands around that time, Free, and later I got to tour with Paul Rogers, yes. who's still one of the most incredible vocalists of all time, who influenced me a lot and then later Dio, people like Steve Perry. Uh, I, funny enough, I had a conversation, albeit by email with Steve Vai, a couple of days ago. He said, um, yeah, I'm on the road for a year and a half now. And I said, it's quite incredible that both of us have been touring for over 40 years and playing, and we still have the passion and the want to do this thing. And still, I wake up every day and I built this beautiful studio here. And I can't wait to get in the studio every morning to create music. I've had a, you know, a really blessed career. I'm very lucky that I still have the same range that I do vocally. Again, a little bit of arthritis in, in my left hand. You get issues with playing a lot joints after a while as, um, Billy Gibbons, and this is my name dropping day. I become friends with Billy and yeah, probably write some songs together. And, He's here in Las Vegas. We were talking one day and someone said, I'm not old. I'm just a 20-year-old 
with over 40 years of experience. And, you know, as you get older, your mind doesn't really age. It's just, it's just your physical form. Yeah. And I still, I still love going out performing. I still try and run around the stage and talk the, uh, the bullshit that I usually talk <laughs> on stage. My manager is always saying to me, Lee, who you've spoken to. Yes. Uh, we've got a 90 minute set. He said, can you talk a little bit less, please? And he goes, <laughs> I know some people do a show and they, they've got their spiel. You can see someone and see them 10 years later and they yeah. say the same things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't do that. And I um, sometimes go on about the new generation of music and songs and it's partial, partial, uh, a gig, and then a comedy show. <laughs> I warn people that it might not be wall-to-wall music. I try not to be too political, but I I do have opinions on things, and and uh, most of mine are mostly environmental or, or whatever. But yeah, yeah, I've had a I've had a very blessed life, and uh, you know, I I hope I do the the famous thing that Com- Tommy Cooper did is croak on stage, you know. <laughs> The question of retirement is is not really not really there. So as long as I can play and sing and write, there just is no no better feeling than a bunch of musicians getting together and playing. Mm. And I've told the rest of the band and stuff with this new record, there's going to be none of this. Oh, you've got Pro Tools at home. You've got Pro Tools at home. Do your bit and send it to send me the files via Dropbox. I want four people playing together in a room. Yeah. And that's magic has been destroyed, especially doing co- during COVID. Mm-hmm. And there's something different that happens when you do that. I know with great platforms like this Zoom and stuff, they've, they've had things where bands can record together over video, but there's just nothing like, you know, the four of you being in, in a, in a room together. That person and, touch. Like, yeah. Yeah, and I'm lucky I've got the facility to do that. Usually I write the songs and program them into a, a something like Logic, Apple's Logic, and I use two companies, IK Molder Media and Arturia, make these great sense. And, and actually, I didn't mention before GPS, which is with Guthrie Govan, who's an in- incredible guitarist and he's done so well. But Eric Norlander, also does a lot of sound design for IK Multimedia. We have a band together called Dukes of the Orient. We've done two albums. And okay. we will be doing another one of those eventually, especially now. It's taken me four months to get this facility up and running. It's uh, a labor of love. I've really been building this since December of last year. So I finally got this together. So I expect a, a lot of recorded works now to be coming out from us. And I want to try and make them really hi-fi, and along the lines of, of the Asia stuff yeah. that we put out before. You know, it's going to be much, very much a retro sound, but I love Trevor Horn, uh, Alan Parsons, Mutt Lang. I want to make, I want to make hi-fi uh, works of art. This is, that's what I'm going to strive to do on this next album. We've already actually done the uh, album cover. It's uh, another A album starting with an a ending with an a uh, it's going to be called aviana oh wow which okay. bird like rodney matthews has done our album cover and it's beautiful over may and june 
go back, as I said, on the road in July. That's when we hope to have it completely finished. You mentioned earlier about some songs and artists that you love and follow, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I love this game. The recipients don't generally enjoy it. I do do understand that if I had to ask you this question in two minutes, two days, two hours, two weeks, I know your answer would be different each time. But if you had to push play to five songs by other artists once we were finished this interview, what would those five songs be and by whom? Andrew Gold, Lonely Boy. Okay. Love that song. I got to write with him on Aura. We became great friends. Sadly, he's not with us. One of the greatest songwriters of all time. It's My Life, Talk Talk, Samba Pati, Santana, Day of the Eagle, Robin Trower, Mr. Big, Free. Okay, cool. Nice mix. Nice. I must add some of those to my list. I had a childhood listening to music from Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, to the stylistics. And I'm very much, as I said earlier, a song person. You know, that, that list, there was actually nothing, even though I love prog stuff. And as you say, if you ask me down the road or if you didn't put me on the on the spot, <laughs> there would be, be a lot of different songs. Exactly. You know? That's a very cool question. You have zero time to think about it. Yes. <laughs> That's why I love it. <laughs> and the mix of people's responses is fantastic as well. You writing new music, as you said, all the time, new songs. When you write from zero to a three to four minute song, what is that creative process for you? Is it easy each time? What's the musical journey of creating a music and a song for you. I had a very long conversation with Rod Argent about this. And some of the best songs actually come the fastest. He wrote She's Not There with the zombies. Yes. And he was in the zombies, then Argent, and then Santana covered that song. And he said the idea came quicker than the length of the song. He wrote the song basically within three minutes, as long as the song was. For me, everybody works differently. You know, you've got the Elton John way where, you know, Bernie Taupin gave Elton the lyrics. Yes. He did the music afterwards. What I tend to do, I write a lot either on guitar or on keyboards. I became a keyboard player out of necessity and watching Jeff Downs and really learning off of Jeff, uh, his incredible inversions and, and, and melodic style. You know, and I never saw Jeff Downs as as a huge soloist, but as a guy that that made the most wonderful inversions of, say, a C chord or an A minor, he would just make it sound great and a great soundsmith. So I'm a primitive keyboard player, but I actually write most of my songs on keyboards. And my lack of knowledge on keyboards is kind of good because I go to places where someone musically wouldn't go. Yes. But generally, I get some chords together and then get a top-line melody. And then I use the Apple's Logic as a platform to put my ideas down, and then I basically do the melody, get try and get it in the right kind of key and stuff like that. Then I start hunting for lyrics, and then I record everything onto my iPhone. I've got all this expensive recording gear, but the start of everything is on an iPhone, whether it's acoustic guitar or a keyboard. It goes onto an iPhone. Uh, my iPhone's packed with hundreds of little snippets of songs that I've having to 
tirelessly go through for this album. Basically, that comes next. Then the lyrics come. And the lyrics I painstakingly go through. I like my lyrics to be ambiguous in a way that uh, I know what I'm talking about. Yes. But I like it that it could be seen like a painting. Uh, it could be seen by three different people and they read something into it. I, you know, I wrote a song off of Aria called Summer, uh, Now That Summer's Gone. And it's all about the seasons and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's actually about my father's death, the, the summer of his life had ended. And three different people could see that song as three completely different things. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's how I like to look at stuff lyrically. I tend not to want to go down the I love you baby lyrics. <laughs> um, okay. You know, there's a clever way to write a love song. I really try to, I try to paint images, pictures in people's minds lyrically and that's usually quite a painstaking process that i have to be in the right mood and i find when i'm songwriting it takes a while to get back into it again you have to get on a new plane of consciousness yes so the the process of songwriting is like you're writing you're writing you're writing and then all of a sudden you get this focus and you're writing very detailed way i remember writing aria with uh, Jeff Downs, and we wrote that in a recording studio. We had some ideas, but we went into a residential studio for three months, basically with zero material, and then we wrote the songs in the studio, and we never, I think maybe we went down the pub once. We never left the recording studio for three months. Wow. There was a residential studio in the south of England with an air of Christmas, our families didn't visit us. Very rarely anyone came. And we just basically had a few beers. They had their own, you know, cooks and chefs in that place. Yeah. And we just got ensconced. And after about the first two weeks, the detail just came in. And we it was very much a four-piece band then with um, Al Petrelli, who's now in Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and uh, Mike, Michael Sturgis on drums. So it, it was a cool time. So that, you know, that's my, that's my process of songwriting. Yeah. Everybody's different. Exactly. Um, sometimes I can come up with a top line melodically and then work the chords around it. But usually it starts from chords. Myself, and I'm sure the listeners as well are so excited about all the new music coming out for Asia featuring yourself and um, your other band and everything that's coming through and the tours and stuff. So the podcast is listened to throughout the world. As a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? I just uh, want to say thank you really to everybody for giving this this chancer um, a, a career, you know. I was always the youngest person in in half the bands I was in, you mm -hmm. know. And then I ended up being the oldest person. <laughs> but uh, I was, you know, thrown into Asia uh, and had to fill some very big shoes, you know, with an icon like John Wetton as a great bass player, great singer, great songwriter. And I really want to thank everybody for giving me such a, a beautiful life and a wonderful life. And hopefully, I hate saying the word fans. Mm. I, I think that's degrading. But the supporters of what I do, I, I thank you 
all so much for giving me such a blessed career. As John says, guys, thank you, blessings, and continue to listen because there's lots more to come. 